Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn East. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. You know, as a child of the 1970s and 80s, there were certain things uh, in cartoons and stories that lodge deeply in my mind and are still with me. I always think of what the, the funny line from the comedian John Mullaney observes. He says, as a child, I always thought quicksand was going to be a much larger problem than it turned out to be. And I, I certainly relate to that having grown up in the 70s and 80s. But even though quicksand hasn't proven to be a big part of my adult life, one thing from childhood images that has stuck with me that I still regularly think about for some reason is tightrope walking. And I'm not sure why, but tightrope walking, for some reason, was very much part of my consciousness growing up in the 1970s and 80s. And maybe it's a far simpler time and such daring feats seem more exciting. Um, I remember there's a very famous German family of tightropers. Some of you older people remember the great Wallendas. And I do remember in 1978 on live television when the patriarch of the Wallenda family fell to his death when he was trying to walk between two buildings in San Juan. And now that I think about it, maybe that's why I still remember these things. I was scarred. But this week, I did a little research into tightrope walking, which is technically called funambulism, if you didn't know, and discovered that the key to walking a tightrope is, probably obviously, balance, but specifically lowering your center of gravity toward the rope so that you can stay in the middle of it. And a pole can also help because it enables you to realign your center when you go to one side or the other, which of course is the great danger. Now, the reason I'm talking about tightrope walking this morning is because As I've reflected on our text from Philippians today, it strikes me as yet another example of the millions of examples in Scripture of the necessity of walking a tightrope of truth, a tightrope of truth, goodness, and beauty between two much easier baths that you can fall off on on either side. Or to slightly change the metaphor, as one of my mentors always said to me, and it's always stuck with me, the truth is a knife edge. It's easier to fall off either side of it than to walk the narrow, balanced way of wisdom. So I want you to hold on to that thought. I want that idea of walking a tightrope of truth to stand still in, in, the, in, in your mind over the Niagara Falls right now as we turn to Holy Scripture. And Pastor Kevin and I are continuing our walk through the Apostle Paul's wonderful little letter to the church in Philippi. And a couple of weeks ago, I felt like I hit the lottery with the text that fell to me, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, such a beautiful and powerful portion of scripture. Well, I think it's happened to me again today. 3, 1 to 11, the text we're going to be in, is truly one of the greatest hits 
of the Bible. And in fact, if the whole Bible is like great, is like uh, the Eagles' greatest hits album, 3 1 to 11 might be Hotel California right here in it, right? It's that good of a text. And the reason why Philippians 3 1 to 11 is so amazing is because what the Apostle Paul says in these verses gets at the absolute nuclear core of what Christianity is, of what the gospel is, of what Jesus Christ is about, of really what it means to be a Christian. It's that important and that beautiful. So let me read it for you uh, before I pray, and then we'll see what God is saying. Let me read for you Philippians 3, 1 to 11. Paul says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, so far, a little odd, but here it comes. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you as people in need. We can't sustain our own lives. We cannot control all the things around us. We thank you that you are very kind and you are very powerful. You're all powerful. And so we humble ourselves before you and ask that even now you'd send the Spirit to teach, to open our hearts and minds. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I said that this text sits right at the heart of the gospel message. But if you look back at those first three verses, they don't sound like it. In fact, they're quite shocking in how negative and intense they are, calling people dogs, etc. But the reason is, is because in route to the heart of what Paul's going to say in our text, he has to address his enemies. There were people who were actually opposed to what he was saying. They were teaching the opposite of what Paul and, and Jesus were teaching. So it requires some strong words. Now, if you were around our church for our series in Galatians, you know that Paul regularly had to deal with the same issue he's dealing with here, that there was a group of people that we can call the Judaizers that were a deviation from the gospel. Now, the issues are deep and complex, but I'll try to make it simple for us to make sense of this. Christianity is rooted in the Jewish faith, in the people and story of Israel. Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the whole world, was a Jewish man. But Jesus taught that his coming into the world transformed everything and created the way for all people, both Jews and Gentiles, to come to know God and to enter into his kingdom. He didn't come to destroy Israel or disregard Jewish history, but he did come to fulfill it, he says, to bring it to its intended goal or end so that a more 
ancient faith before there was Judaism, the more ancient faith of Abraham might become a reality for all of God's people. That's wonderful. That's good news. That's the message of the New Testament. Unless you are a Jewish person who can't handle this, for whom this is just too much of an unexpected change. If you're a Jewish person for whom these traditions and histories and attitudes of us versus them are so deeply embedded in your psyche that you can't let go of them. Now, we know that many Jewish Jewish people in Jesus and Paul's days, they did see it, and they were converted and came to believe. But we also know that especially the most conservative and many of the leaders in Jesus and Paul's day hated Jesus, and they opposed him precisely because of what I just said, that it was saying that there's the same faith is available for all people. But here's where it gets complicated. There were some Jewish people who did see that Jesus was more than a mere man. They didn't see him as, as evil. They saw him as worthy of following and worship. But in a kind of compromised position in their minds, they taught that a Gentile, a non-Jew, could only become part of King Jesus' kingdom if they believed in Jesus and also followed these traditional Jewish customs like kosher diet, Sabbath observance, and especially circumcision, the things that Moses commanded. So it's kind of a Jesus plus Judaism deviation of the gospel that ends up with two tiers of Christians. Jewish Christians are the, are the real Christians, then Gentiles are kind of add-ons. Now, this is a problem. It's a major problem in the first decades of the church. And when you read the New Testament, you see it comes up over and over again because it's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that he revealed and revealed by the Holy Spirit through the apostles that the truth of the gospel is that Jesus completed and fulfilled all that God had commanded through Moses. And now the more ancient faith of Abraham has opened the door to all people. And so we see in the New Testament, that there were a lot of conflicts about this. There were a lot of disagreements. There was breaking of fellowship. There were attacks and hard words. And it even took the apostles a little while to figure out the best way to talk about this. If you read in Acts 15, they finally had to have a big council where they figured out that this was wrong and to reject this idea of Judaism, this this idea of Judaizers. So when Paul addresses this, this is a hot topic, but a hot button topic, and he is very intense about it. And in fact, kind of ironic about it. Look at those verses again in verse two. He says, "Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh." So it's very ironic what he says here, because he's saying that the Judaizers, the ones that are trying to add to the gospel, they're the dogs. That is, that means unclean outsiders, which is what they would be very angry about. They're the lawbreakers, the evildoers, the ones who don't really obey Moses. And they're the mutilators of the flesh. That's a reference to circumcision. So he takes the things that they're priding themselves on and very ironically turns them on their head. And then he says, we, true Christians, we're actually the real circumcision. We're the ones who do truly worship God via the Holy Spirit. And we don't put any confidence in the flesh, things like circumcision. And then now he's getting ramped up. Because then in verses four to nine, typical Paul style, he goes, he goes from that idea of not putting confidence in the flesh to say this, and he unpacks his own biography. Basically, he says, you want to play this game of who's the best Jew around? I'll play that game with you. And that's what we get in verse four. Look at what he says. 
Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, he was persecuting the church for righteousness based on the law, faultless. In other words, Paul says, I am a VIP Jew. He has platinum membership in the club. He has prestiged all his weapons in Call of Duty for the younger crowd out there. He has executive level parking spot and the CEO bathroom key. He hits 10 under par every time. That's to keep the golf references going throughout these servants. And when he walks into the Jerusalem Hilton, they swish him away to the penthouse suite. In terms of street credit among Jews, he drives his monster truck over his Teslas to get to his Lamborghini. He is elite level. He is like the ultimate VIP Jew. And then here is the key, the turning point. Look at verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. There it is, friends. That is the heart of the gospel, the nuclear core of the gospel, that the gospel entails a coming to see the world and God and myself, yourself, differently than we did before because of this intervention, this erupting into our minds and hearts of Jesus Christ and his crucified glory. You see, what Paul describes here is what it means to become a Christian, to come to see God rightly and to see yourselves rightly and to respond. As the great theologian of old John Calvin puts it, all wisdom or all knowledge consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. To taste and know and experience the gospel entails both parts of this true wise knowledge. You have to come to see God truly in Jesus Christ, and you also have to come to see yourself truly. And before all of this, the Apostle Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He was an opponent. He was this super platinum level, PhD level, educated, zealous Jewish leader who thought and participated in the killing of Christians. But something happened. We know from Acts chapter 9 that when Paul was en route to go kill some more Christians out of zeal, he was on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus with a letter saying that he could kill some Christians. And while he was traveling, the Lord Jesus appeared to him and literally blinded him and brought him to his knees. And after three days of fasting and praying, God opened his eyes, scales fell from his eyes, it says. He was baptized and he became one of the greatest Christian missionaries and preachers of all time. This road to Damascus conversion was the opening of Paul's eyes to see God clearly for the first time. He thought he understood God, but he didn't. And to see himself clearly. This is what it means to be converted, to be born again, to become a Christian. For Paul, it was this great plot twist moment like a great plot twist at the end of a movie, whether it's, um, you know, Arrival or Prestige, or now you see me, I won't spoil them, so I won't tell you what happens, but you know how it is, and a great plot twist. For Paul, this is what happened. He realized that everything he thought was wrong, 
about who God was and who he was. And that moment of God knowledge and self-knowledge changes everything. What Paul is describing here in Philippians 3 is, as one commentator puts it, I love this phrase, a total rearranging of his cerebral furniture. Like everything in his mind got turned around and reset. And so notice what Paul says then about his former skills and his privileges and his advantages, his accomplishments, his pedigree as a VIP. He doesn't say, you know, all those things were really good about me and with a little help from Jesus, I crossed over the line. He says, no, they were lost to me. They're garbage, actually smelly and something to be disposed of. And we might say, hold on, Paul, buddy, tone down the rhetoric a bit. But what Paul is saying is not overstated if you understand his point. He's not saying that it's actually better to be a bad person than a good person. That's not his point at all. His point is about a new reckoning, a reconsidering, a recalculating, a rearranging, a revaluing of how we see God and how we see ourselves. Paul is saying that once we see Jesus Christ and ourselves rightly, even all of our good pre-Christian accomplishments will be seen as loss and garbage. Think of it maybe like this beautiful mansion that you see, and we all envy the people that must live in it and, and how wonderful it is, and you think it's amazing, until one day a sinkhole appears underneath it, and half of it falls in, and the rest of it's ruined, and suddenly the value we put, put on that thing is nothing anymore because it's actually worse You would not want to live there. This is because what we value is always worth it. What it's worth is based on what's around it. It's valuing is always relative on a scale. So if you and I were starving and thirsty in the desert, a cup of water would be far more valuable to us than a pound of gold. And a piece of bread would be far more valuable to us than 2 million followers on Instagram. Or... Maybe you've seen pictures like this. I remember seeing pictures from the Great Depression and maybe post-World War II Germany with people pushing around shopping carts full of money to just buy a quart of milk because the value of something was so devalued. So too, Paul is saying, with all of our goodness and badness, once we see God clearly and see ourselves clearly, listen to those words again, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What happens to Paul is what can happen to us when we come to see the infinitely more valuable thing that God is offering to us. Instead of all the things that we think that are great or bad about ourselves, when we come to see God rightly, that he is giving us his own righteousness and goodness and beauty and power, the great exchange, we might call it, whatever was good or bad or true of us or probably a combo, now can be exchanged for God's own goodness that he declares us and gives himself to us. That is the moment. This is what happened to me back in 1988. I know it's happened for many of you, most of you as well, that there was a moment where you saw God clearly and you saw yourself clearly. Recently, I stumbled across some old old, 
I was a youth pastor for five years back in Illinois in the 90s, and I ran across some old music from those days and was listening to it, and there was this old Christian band, PFR, some of you may remember them, and I just was really touched by this song that I remember from back in the 90s in those days, and I, this, this second verse of the song, I put the words on the screen there for you, where they're describing this great exchange. It says, hidden in my heart, the day he called me friend, the day he set me free. I found him one summer day, or better said, Jesus, you found me. I gave you my loneliness and broken heart, and you gave me your love. This happens, friends, only when we are honest with God and honest with ourselves. When we lay down our soul-defending shields, when we take off our soul masks. I had in there, take off our masks. And then I thought that's going to be a weird thing to say. So we take off our soul masks. For some of us, that moment requires getting knocked off a donkey under our butts. Like Paul, for some of us, it's little steps over time that lead to a realization. Either way, this is the gospel coming to a true knowledge of God in Christ and seeing what he's offering and coming to see our own helplessness to earn our favor with God. And the result of this moment is that you see with new eyes. Look at the last two verses of our text, verses 10 and 11. The result is a new passion, a changed desire, a new hope, a deep longing. Paul says, and now I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and, some, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. The result of this re-seeing is a change of what we value. Once we have seen the value and beauty of Jesus Christ, we long to know him, to be with him, to, to dine with him, to be like him, and to know even the power and the sufferings of what it means to be connected to him. And this is because the power and the sufferings both come together because of what we talked about a couple weeks ago, the great J-curve of the reality that Jesus' own life was suffering before life. It was death before life. It was suffering before joy. And so now that Paul and, and we have seen Jesus rightly, we see who he is, he sees what he gives us, the sufferings, the pain, the disappointments, the setbacks, they're welcome. Their value is minimal because of what we gain from Jesus. And so now finally, I want to return us to the tightrope. I left you standing over Niagara Falls with the idea of a tightrope. I wanted to ask, how does that fit into this? Well, here's how. Paul's concern here, the reason he's writing these words to us, is the concern with what we can call legalism. Because legalism is a misvaluing of what God cares about. Legalism is valuing the wrong things, even good things, like piety and traditions and conservative values. It's valuing those in the wrong way, thinking that those somehow give us a standing with God. But if there's anyone who knew that wasn't the case, it was Paul. But here's where the tightrope comes in. If on the one side, the temptation is toward legalism, misvaluing good things, on the other side, you can also fall off the tightrope, what we might call 
ethical liberalism or ethical liberality where there's no rules, no prescriptions for our lives. And this is where the gospel and Christianity is so nuanced and so wise and so true like a knife edge. We've already seen it in Philippians as we go along. In fact, last week, Pastor Kevin was talking about Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he rightly said this great analogy that our relationship with God is like a marriage. In fact, that's the exact metaphor Paul uses in Ephesians, right? Our relationship with God is like a marriage. It's a dynamic, ongoing relationship. It's not a one-time event. It's not just a static thing. And embracing the gospel means that we don't fall off the one side of trying to earn our favor with God, but we also don't fall off the other side and say, well, I don't, you know, I'm, just, I'm good now and don't need to think about anything. Both are sides of the tightrope that you can fall off of. And when the funambulist falls from the tightrope, it doesn't matter which side they fell from, it's still a fall. Let me remind you of the great Dallas Willard quote that Pastor Kevin used last week. He says, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. This is this kind of thing Paul's addressing here. But effort is an action. So here's the question I have for you to wrap this up. What is the effort? What is the work out your salvation with fear and trembling? And how does that relate to what he just said about every all my works I consider garbage? What are you and I supposed to do in light of this? Well, there are certain attitudes and habits that we should pursue in our lives, like love and unity and humility, the things we've seen in Philippians so far. But the work I want to invite you to today, friends, I think is the much more difficult and deeper and meaningful kind of work that Paul's talking about. And that is honest soul work. It's what Paul did, I'm sure, in those three days after he had been blinded before he saw again. It's what Paul did. It's what you and I need to do ourselves, do as well. We need to see ourselves clearly. What happened to Paul and what happened to millions of other Christians throughout the ages needs to happen to us as well. Not just at our initial conversion, but actually throughout the course of our lives. That is embracing these moments of honest, vulnerable seeing of yourself clearly. And whether your life has been filled with lots of piety and privileges and accomplishments like Paul's, or whether your life has been filled with shameful things that you've done and maybe shameful things have been done to you, for most of us, it's probably a mixture of those two things. The deepest thing that must happen to us is that we need to be open to that plot twist. We need to be open to the rearranging of our cerebral furniture. We need to be open to the recalculating of who we really are and what really matters. It happened to me again last night. After 27 years of marriage, another moment where I saw myself more clearly, not positively, <laughs> in relationship to my wife, some ways that you know I show up with her. This is an ongoing thing of moments of honest self-understanding. And so the working out of our salvation with fear and trembling, the walking of the tightrope of truth, is staying in this honest, vulnerable place where we assess ourselves rightly and assess Jesus rightly. 
And when we do that, friends, when we're honest before God about who we are, not trying to hold on to all the good things we've done, when we're honest, there is such radical joy and freedom because in that exact moment of honesty and vulnerability, that's where we find God in his grace. We find the gift of the great exchange of all of our garbage and loss from our righteousness, and we get instead his righteousness and power and life. And there is healing that comes into our bodies and our souls and our minds because when we are in that place of honesty, of seeing ourselves truly and experiencing the great exchange of getting God's righteousness instead of our own, then we are finally aligned with the reality of the universe and our life will begin to flow. The work you and I must do is to not flee or try to escape or cover up or our pain or act like we have it all together, but to step into these moments of honest self-assessment of who we are and who God is, both the good and the bad in our lives, and receive the gift of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So what? So I'm inviting you to wake up. I'm inviting you today, whether you are not a Christian yet or whether you've been a Christian for decades, I'm inviting you to reconsider at the fundamental level what you value about yourself and how that's driving your life. And I'm inviting you to pray for God to remove the scales from your eyes. If you're not a Christian, this could be the first great awakening, that moment when you're born again. But if you're already a Christian, you and I need this constant reawakening, this re-seeing, this truer and deeper self-understanding. The ongoing journey of the Christian life is a falling upward into greater knowledge of God and self. I'm not the first preacher, and I won't be the last to use the great image of the blue and red pills from the matrix. Such a great image here. The red pill represents taking into yourself something that are going to open your eyes to the truth See things how they really are. It's not pleasant, at least not initially, but it's reality. The blue pill keeps you in willful ignorance because you can't handle the pain of it. The truth is, you and I can't stay in ignorance of God and yourself forever. It eventually will catch up to you. Some of you today are sitting in the ashes of years or decades of not facing the reality of who you are. Reality has a way of catching up with us sooner or later. The hefty bag full of beef stew may tell itself it's okay as it falls from the six-story building, but it will eventually hit the sidewalk. And so too, how's that for an image? And so too with the reality of our lives. So I'm inviting you today to a place of honesty, to a Damascus Road experience, to a reevaluation of who God is and who you are so that you might know life. So what about you? Are you willing to face honestly who you are and what's going on in your life? If you do, you will find God's grace there. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.